Hey everybody, it's Steven here. Before we get into this week's episode, I've got something exciting to share. Hodinkee has been nominated for a 2019 Webby Award. If you're not familiar with the Webbies, they're basically the Oscars of the internet. And every nominee gets to contend for a People's Voice Award selected by you, the voting public who used, I guess, the internet. We'd ask you to head over to vote.webbyawards.com, enter Hodinkee into the search box, and vote for us. We can't do this without you. Voting is open until Thursday, April 18th, and we'd appreciate all the support. And now here's Hodinky Radio with Scott Schumann. No matter what you do for a living, you can probably look back and point to a few people who made your career possible. Whether it was someone who inspired you, someone who mentored you, or someone who gave you that first big break, there are people who loom large in your own personal story, and sometimes they don't even know it. For me, Scott Schumann is without question one of those people. You might know him better as The Sartorialist, which is the blog he started back in 2005. And when I was still a student and thought I might want to try my hand at writing about clothes on the internet for a living, The Sartorialist was a clear example of someone being able to use photography and their own personal passion to create something special and build a community around it. I've checked The Sartorialist basically every day for over a decade now. There aren't many websites I can say that about. Scott himself is something of a mystery, though, since his focus is always on other people, if you'll excuse that terrible pun. His job is something like that of an editor or a curator, but behind all of that, he's a really fascinating guy with a lot to say himself. He's also working on some really interesting stuff these days, including a book about style in India, so don't think you know the whole story already. Now, I made a scheduling mistake, and midway through the conversation, I actually had to leave, but Ben and Scott kept things rolling just fine, and in fact, had basically a whole separate 45-minute-long conversation that you're going to hear. It turned out great. We also recorded this at the Hodinkee offices, and you can hear some pipes hissing and some sirens blaring at a few points. Sorry for the distraction, a real studio is coming soon, but I promise it doesn't make the conversation any less interesting. I'm your host, Stephen Pulverant, and this is Hodinkee Radio. This week's episode is presented by A. Langenzoner. This year, the German watchmaker is celebrating the 25th anniversary of the iconic Langa 1, a modern wristwatch unlike any other. Stay tuned to learn more about the Langa 1 later in the show and visit alangenzona.com for more. Welcome to the show. Thanks for coming. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. And we've also got, uh, we've got Ben here with us. Hello, everybody. So... Scott, we, we met once before in the office. You, uh-huh. you came by, and we decided to, to set this up. I begged you to. <laughs> Please, <laughs> very let kindly. me be on your podcast. <laughs> but the thing you probably don't remember, in fact, I'm almost certain you don't remember. I, I, would, kinda, gar- I would guarantee he I kind of hope yeah. you don't remember. If you okay. remember, that's a little weird. Okay. Uh, is we actually met once before. Okay. Uh, 2009, uh, I was studying abroad. I was a college student. Okay. Uh, and went to Liberty London for your book signing. Oh, okay. Waited four <laughs> hours in line. Uh, wow. It was massive. I was like shocked when I showed up. I was like, oh shit, like other people know about this thing. Um, yeah, and it was amazing. And then got to the end of the line, met you, very mm-hmm. kind. Uh, and we were wearing the same glasses. Oh, really? And you made a comment about it, and I was like, <laughs> Oh shit! I have the same glasses as the sartorial. It's like I felt, right there, I felt man. so cool, but uh, yeah, so and I was, was nice. Yeah, you were very nice. Okay, yeah. I mean, nice yeah. enough. If right? you weren't, you wouldn't be here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> like, this guy is yeah. dead, dead I, to me. <laughs> I, I'll tell you that it was the one at Liberty. Yeah, it was the for one at the Liberty. First book. Yeah. Oh. 
That one, I, I cringe a little bit when I think about it because it was a very, uh, for me, a very emotional book signing because it was the first really big book signing. Yeah. And, uh, and at the time I was drinking and I think I was drinking during that book signing because like <laughs> it was, um, you know, when I started the, the blog, the concept was, I'm just going to go out and take pictures of people and share them and all of that. And, you know, there was nobody who had done anything with the blog or kind of social media or anything. So I didn't expect anything to happen. And this thing took off so fast that, you know, I certainly didn't think that within a short amount of time, I would be sitting in a window of liberty and people lined up all around the block and stuff. And I don't know why, because I'd, I'd already done a New York book signing, but there was something about the fact of being in London uh, and doing the book signing. I guess I could feel it was because I could see people outside. People kept telling me, oh, there's people all over this place. And it really made me think about my dad. My dad would have been so proud to see this. He, I guess maybe he had died. That was 2009. So maybe he had died that year, earlier that year. So he was aware of the book. He didn't get to see the book, but he was kind of an artist himself, a writer, and uh, I think would have loved to have been more of an artist. So for some reason that night, like, oh, like all this emotion came through. So I'm signing the book and stuff and having a drink. And I thought, oh, by the end of this, it probably wasn't pretty. I was like, yeah, <laughs> I love you. You got great style. I'm signing the book and this. I just remember it being very emotional for me. And the people towards the end of line, when you started saying towards the end of line, I was like, oh, no, he's going to say I was did something horrible or something. <laughs> no one told me I've done anything horrible. I don't think I did anything horrible or embarrassing, but I just remembered that particular book sign just because it just, you know, that whole thing took off so quick in the beginning. And the fact that I would be like a photographer and have a book and and this, you know, because you're always nervous because that was only second book sign. Yeah. And it's in, not in New York. So I thought either no one's going to show up or it's going to be pretty good. And it was pretty good. But okay, that was a good story. Thank you for not, <laughs> to, thank you, thank myself for not have done doing anything crazy during that particular. You, you mentioned it encounter. taking off really quickly. And, you know, there's this kind of like bit of lore, I guess, around your story that the first time you really picked up a camera was, was when you had kids, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so you you didn't come to this as a photographer. You came to this as somebody who was who was interested in fashion, who also happened to kind of find an interest in in photography, right? Yeah, I mean, I like to think of it as um, it's almost like a, an athlete who played sports for a long time and then picks up a camera because and shoots the sport that he played, a because he loves that sport, and b maybe he brings something to it and he finds himself in the right spot because he knows the sport so well. He knows to be here, not there. I don't know if that's really how sports photography works, if you get to walk around the whole court or field or whatever. But I think that's conceptually kind of how it worked for me, you know, that I loved fashion um, from a very early age, and I wanted to be involved with it. But I grew up in Indiana, so I didn't really know how I would be involved with it. So sales and marketing was the only thing that I, I could grasp that I could do. Um, and I didn't feel... I felt creative, but I had I, I just assumed everybody in New York was going to be so much more creative and, and more gifted and all of that than me. Um, so I didn't try and go down a creative field. I wish I would have pushed. I, I have two um, daughters now, one's 16 and one's 20. And one's a, a, a ballet dancer studying to be a ballet dancer, and the other one's in school in California. And the one thing I keep telling them is dream big. I didn't dream big enough. I didn't, not that I didn't have faith in myself, but I just didn't. Uh, I look back now and think, why didn't I push my 
parents to let me go to school in Milan for a year? Why didn't I try harder to go to New York? I just didn't dream big enough. But anyway, to get back to it, yes, I, I didn't pick up a camera until uh, after 9-11 and we had our kids and, and I closed the showroom um, because after 9-11 it was too tricky and, mm. um, and I was, had somehow fallen into this thing of being a stay-at-home dad. Our nanny went back to Honduras and so I was watching them and for fun until I figured out what I was going to do. Started taking pictures of my kids with the little point-and-shoot film camera. And I really enjoyed that. It was a great express, a great way for me to express my creativity. So I started shooting them more, and I was with them all the time, you know, like taking yeah. them to the park and all of that. Um, and you know, and tell me if my stories get too long. No, no, this times. is great. It is kind of what I'm supposed to do here, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. this is okay. all about yeah. you, my friend. So uh, actually, something that that ties in very much why I, I, I was doing earlier today that. You know, when I started shooting, I literally would take magazines or books like this guy, Steve McCurry, this famous kind of sure. yeah. National Geographic photographer. He did a book called Portraits, and I would sit there and look at his pictures and look at mine and be like, "What? why don't they look like his? And I had nobody that was a photographer, no one that was a... I, one guy that I kind of knew, but he was too fancy to go through and explain a lot of that stuff, and I didn't really ask him. But I liked that process of just trying to figure out for myself, you know, really self-taught, looking at the photographs going, oh, okay, I can see his angle is always a little under their eye. Oh, it's shallow. It's, it's out of focus behind them. I didn't really know the idea of shallow depth of field. So I had to learn that. I had to learn everything myself from reading, looking at, really looking at the pictures, trying to figure out the difference. And, um, and so Steve McCurry was a big influence. And I remember sitting in my apartment on 21st Street thinking, he's got a really cool job. He just goes, walks around, takes pictures of people. And uh, I thought I, I didn't specifically think I would like to make that my job because I didn't think I could, but I thought that must be a pretty cool job. So I got to the point where that was my job, and over the years, uh, I got to know him a little bit. And so now I'm just finishing um, my next book that will come out with Toshin this fall, this September. Um, shameless plug. No, that's, that's um, also what shot, you're here for. Yeah. yeah. And uh, shot all in India. And he, it looks like he will be, I've asked him and he said yes, that he'll write a little forward for the book, Steve. Oh, wow. Um, so to come kind of full circle from that, from like literally teaching myself and looking at his photographs, saying, and I don't think my photographs really look like his, but, you know, um, I think they also convey a certain... Um, uh, emotion to the photographs that he does. I think he's very good at picking out really interesting characters in a great setting. Yeah. I think I'm very good at picking out characters, but for a different reason. So there's some things that we really overlap on. You can really see how he influenced me, but then my take is, I think, really quite different than his. But the fact that he he looks at my work, he leaves comments on Instagram, that he, he likes my work, you know, is a, a huge... Um, uh, I'm gonna cry. <laughs> I mean, it's got it's got to be pretty cool it's, to yeah, like it's open satisfying. your phone and it's like, oh, Steve McCurry liked your photo. Yes, that's a cool. That's thing. really cool. Or when he calls, you know, if I'm walking down the street and I'm with Jenny and I'm like, oh my god, Steve McCurry's calling me. <laughs> yeah. That's why I do when Ben calls. Okay. By the way, yes, <laughs> right. I, I, I think it's so amazing that I mean, you're you're Scott Schumann. I mean, you 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 know everybody, but I, it's amazing that you get most excited about Steve McCurry, not any of the the other several dozen hundred whatever famous people you must know that you must see all the time, you know? Well, you know, I, I mean, for, for me, famous people has never meant I don't really go out of my way to shoot them. Yeah. Um, 
I mean, famous people doesn't, I, I don't really know a lot. I don't go out of my way to do it. Like yeah. even with the books, you know, if there's a picture of, you know, Kanye, you know, we didn't tag it. If there's a picture of Armani, we didn't tag it. Right. Um, I don't really go out of my way for it. I'm always more excited by being surprised by not knowing. And actually it was something we were just talking about today when we were, I was meeting with my editor for the India book and he wanted to on each page put where the photograph was taken, mm -hmm. just the city. And I said, I like mystery. You know, in this day of social media and and people sharing everything and kind of oversharing and so much information, that's one of the ways I protect myself is trying not to, I mean, you know, I'm sure people would say about me, I, I don't think they'd say I'm aloof, but like when I'm shooting and a lot of other people are going to shows and stuff like that and they're yeah. chatting this and that, I'm working. So I'm talk with people and things like that, but you know, I'm constantly, if, if I'm in a place where you see me and it's one of those things, I'm working and I'm shooting, so I don't go out of my way to use that as my chatting time or my sure. promotion time, that it's really, you know, a shooting time. And um, and uh, so like I was saying, like with the India book, I don't want to put that because I, I like having mystery. You know, I like yeah. having curiosity. And I know when I was teaching myself photography, you know, I would look at, at pictures, you know, maybe August Sander, you know, who's a famous German photographer at the beginning of the last century. And, you know most of the books are in German and, and all this stuff. I don't need to know the actual uh, things about these people being shot. I want to know, I want to create my own story or drive myself to go find out about those. So yeah. um, for me, mystery is a, a bigger thing than uh, famous people or getting to know famous people or anything. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting. Like Ben brought up, you know, the photographers you're interested in are a very sort of interesting bunch of photographers, a, a lot of whom are from the, the first half of, of the of the 20th century. Yeah. Um, you know, and I, I saw a while ago, I saw a TED talk you did uh, where you were talking about Brassai and a mm, photograph yeah, yeah. Of, of these people who to us would look very dressed up and sort of high class, but in fact are, are very low class and are, yeah. are sort of in a dive bar. And yeah, and, they were in the equivalent of Paris of our Bowery. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And, and so it brings up an interesting aspects of photography, which is, which is context and, and history. And, and you sort of need that to, to understand an image in, in a traditional sort of historical way. But I wonder, how do you think about this when you're shooting about maybe what these photographs are going to mean 50 years from now, a hundred years from now, when you don't have that sort of like pop culture way of understanding the way these people are, are dressing and, and sort of behaving? Well, you know, I do think historically about my photographs all the time. You know, I'd, I'd like to shoot for 40 years because I think that'd be a really great – and, you know, by that time I'm going to be 78. So, like, I think that's a good time to cut it off. But, um, you know, I think about it all the time what, what those photographs will mean because I look at old photographs all the time. Like I said, August Sander did a great catalog of images in Germany at the beginning of the century and, you know – um, how he captured his, I, that's the thing I think I'm always drawn to are the people who've kind of captured their setting or like there's a guy, Jamal Shabazz here in New York that really captured hip hop culture in Brooklyn and the Bronx, um, in the early eighties and late seventies. And he was, he just really captured that group in that period in such a beautiful way. And we just watched Paris is burning. Yeah. I don't know how yeah. I didn't watch that up to this point, but we just watched that the other day and they really captured that scene. So you know, I'd really love to um, capture this epic and some of the ways that I do it. And it was a very conscious decision is, you know, before people, when they shot street style, they would kind of put them up against a wall and shoot them. And it was really about the person and what they were wearing 
for me, that's kind of important, but I think I approach it more like, almost like a costume designer. Their, their clothes help tell you a little bit about who they might be. Um, and so like when I was in India, if there's a bunch of guys and they're all wearing like a longi and something, you know, as opposed to just kind of willy nilly picking one, I kind of went the persona of the person and then what they're wearing. That's how I would choose that guy over that one. Um, but for the context, one thing that I, I always try to do, or I'll back up a little bit. Um, like I said, the in the old days or, you know, previously people would kind of put them up against a wall and shoot them. And it was just about what they were wearing. Um, but when I started shooting, I wanted to have the context of the period. And I knew the way that you would get that as opposed to shooting them against the wall, putting them on the sidewalk and shooting down the sidewalk. And maybe, you know, with the wall kind of, because it creates with the sidewalk and with the, with the um, edge of the building, it creates beautiful kind of vanishing points, but also, Subtly, in the background, you would have the fonts and the signs. You would have the street furniture, the benches and things like that. You would have the cars. There's a lot of little elements, design elements, that put um, the person and what they're wearing in context to the design at the rest of the time. So like even in New York right now, there are places that are in the backgrounds of shots that I did 10 years ago that aren't there anymore. Mm -hmm. Or maybe they were uh, um, an abandoned spot and now there's a glass building there. Um, you can see the cars now. Finally, the, there's, I've been shooting almost 15 years, so now the, the, the way the cars look or the taxis look different. Um, there's a shot I did going on my bike up Lafayette, shooting a girl on her bike, and that was before they had all the bike lanes. Mm. So there are little things that you're starting to really see now that I've been shooting long enough. And that's how I think the context, you start to see that change over time. And for me, it's very subtle. You know, you'll see what the design consciousness was at that time. So it's not just the person in the clothes. On the best shots you get, if you kind of look around the frame, you'll, you'll see some of the other design elements of the, of the period. Yeah. That's really interesting. I mean, you, you mentioned capturing an epic, right? And you're, you're mm -hmm. obviously still shooting, you're, you're still making lots of images, and, and I think there's a lot more to come, but something I think you, we can already say, I feel comfortable saying you, you captured was the epic where fashion and the internet met. Um, you know, you, you started the Sartorialist in, in 2005, it really took off in, in 2006, and that was really just as like blogs and e-commerce and really the, the idea that we could like trade ideas about clothing and, and fashion online became a thing. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's it's no surprise to kind of put Ben on the spot here too, that like that's, it wasn't too far after that, that, that Hodinkee took off, you know? Yeah. And, and funnily enough, I, I know you both had early interactions with Tyler Thorson when he was back at uh -huh. GQ, um, who, who kind of, you know, promoted both the Sartorialist and, and Hodinkee. And it's this really interesting kind of moment of, of fashion and specifically menswear and, and the internet all kind of coming together and making this, this sort of beautiful thing. Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, there was just something, you know, there were a lot of things all at play at one time. You probably felt that like sure. blogs got to a point where it was, you felt like anyone could do it. It was very easy. I'm not a super technical person. Um, but you know, I saw that moment, you know, there were forums before that, and the one thing I, you know, guys would get in there and talk about fashion and whatever. There was probably watch ones and things. Sure. But what I realized is that they weren't visual. 
And so everyone's writing about uh, the lapel on the jacket or something, but you can't really see it. Yeah. And, um, and it was one of those things where I realized, oh, you know, a blog can still be a visual thing. At that time, they weren't so super visual. You know, they were more text and, you know, comedy was big on and politics and things, but there weren't very many visual things. And I think that was one of my first um, realizations, like, oh, these blogs could be much more visual. And along with that, I knew that it could, because it was very visual, it could also be very international. And it's one of the reasons I wrote less, because I felt like, you know, if I had a lot of writing, people that were looking at that couldn't speak English in Italy or other places might feel a little disconnected. Where if I put just a little bit of writing, the image is the image and it can speak for itself. And if they want to leave comments, they can do that. But um, that was also a very conscious... I don't know why I seem to understand that media so quickly. The, one of the things that was happening at that time is, you know, I was, like I said, I was a stay-at-home dad. And while I would be doing the dishes and cooking or something, I listened to a lot of, and I still do, um, sports talk radio. Yeah. And, uh, and so I think I understood the concept right away of, I say my thing, and to have that interaction, uh, you know, you kind of put it out there, and then you hopefully create an atmosphere where people feel comfortable to interact and leave comments and things like that. And, and that worked. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that, I think it's probably not dissimilar for you, right, Ben? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you, you had your own kind of embarrassing sartorialist uh, story in the beginning. I'll have my own. And, you All know, right, we, perfect. We, we met relatively recently, but I, I will say that when I had this idea of creating this, this blog effectively about watches, I mean, your site was really the model. Thank and you. And there was nobody else out there that, that had taken a blog to that commercial level in a good way, yeah. in a way where, like, this was a real business. It was more than just kind of like a creative expression. Uh, it, it's really amazing. It's also amazing that, that Tyler was, was involved with, with yeah, both man. of us. Yeah, Shout out to uh, Tyler Thorson. Yeah. In, in, in the first episode of Hodinkee Radio, when we talked about my story, I mean, I, I name-checked Tyler a bunch. 100%. Uh, and he, you know, he found me when I was still working at UBS in, in New Jersey huh. and said, hey, like, you're the first guy under the age of 50 to write about watches. Do you want to write about this for men.style.com? And I, I owe a huge debt of gratitude to, to Mr. Thorson. Yeah. Yeah. I just had a lunch with him the other day. I mean, no kidding. great guy. Absolutely. And all those guys. Dirk Standen was there mm-hmm. at that time. Um, Josh, Josh Peskowitz yeah. was there, not at the exact time. He came a little bit later. But, you know, um, yeah, I mean, it was a really great moment where the, you know, it was funny, especially at Condé Nast, you know, I think you, it almost felt like the kids, you know, Tyler and Dirk, not that he's a kid, but like you kind of felt like that thing was, you know, you know, give it a try. You guys go over there and do the thing. And it wasn't something Anna was going to look at that closely and a lot of these right. other. And so a lot of the top management was still kind of very old school magazine. And yeah. I had to meet because, you know, my one of the things I think that's always worked is that my background is all women's wear. Mm-hmm. And I shoot men's on more instinct and I shoot women's on um, experience. And um, the thing that helped it take off was really having a good women's. I started kind of men's, but then... Right away, when you're out walking on the street, you know, I knew I that what a cool look for a girl would be. Yeah. Um, and so I started adding that. So I did men's first, but then I was telling him, I can do women's, I can do women's, let mm-hmm. me meet with, let me do women's. And I had to meet with a woman there who was very kind of old school Vogue. A, I'm forgetting her name, but that's good because I shouldn't, <laughs> I shouldn't say her name anyway, but it was really one of those, oh, well... Now, I'm not even going to imitate her because people will know. <laughs> but she was very nice, and she said yes, and okay, we will let him do that. But yeah. um, it was one of those just, and I think it also helps. Please. Um, I think it also helps that 
you know, I wasn't a kid. Right. You know, I think it helps that this happened to me when I was in my late 30s. I'd already had a business. I knew how to do it. I knew the opportunity I had. I had no money, but I knew how um, I was old enough to know, A, how to not kind of sell out and not do what I didn't want to do, but how to figure out how to make money um, uh, for things that I wanted to do and how to be able to balance that um, and how to work within a system like Condé Nast and still be able to be strong enough and maintain my thing with their thing at the same time I was doing GQ. Um, so that period, I mean, it was a crazy fun period, don't you think? No, absolutely. I mean, yeah. it, it, it's amazing. You know, Stephen and I were chatting about you just a little bit earlier today, and it wasn't that you were at the top of the game. You were the game. I mean, yeah. you were really the, the guy who created the whole street style phenomenon. And are, are there many of your, your colleagues from, from that early early era that are still around? Anybody you're still in touch with? Well, I mean, I'm, and you know, Tommy's still around, but he's sure. kind of moving a little bit more to design. Yeah. But, you know, he came. There wasn't anyone in the beginning. Right. You know, and, and I take it, you know, it's a big, it's a kind of a compliment and kind of not of a, a compliment that so many people looked at my work and said, oh, I can do what he does. <laughs> <laughs> I think now they're seeing, okay, it's a little bit trickier than you yeah, thought. Like, yeah. I, I think it's, it's like a good chef. You know, you think, you look at it, you go, oh, that looks easy. Yeah. Until you go out and do it and you realize, oh, okay, like, I'm really picky on the people that I shoot. I take, you know, like Bill Cunningham, you know, is great street style photographer and all of that. But I think he was, he's more like Tommy. Those two are more similar in the sense that they really, really love fashion. Um, and so Bill, you know, was much less about lighting and, you know, getting the right st stuff like that, where I think I'm a little more photographic in the sense that, you know, the lighting's really important. The mood's important. You know, once I see someone, I want to kind of shoot their outfit. Then it's really about trying to get a great image of them and whether I want to have a background in it or, you know, is it the whole outfit or is it just the face? Like, you know, I think a lot of my best shots are just great portraits, you know, where you look at them and say, okay, the drama is from here to here, you yeah. know, or it's the hair and whatever. And I think that's the thing that really separated me. I think I'm lucky that I was able to make some money, save some money, sure. do it all for myself so I don't have to shoot for any other editor. Um, even when I was doing Style.com or GQ, I pretty much had my own say, um, which gives you the freedom to not have to guess what you're shooting and have to shoot everything. Yeah. I shoot what I want to shoot, and I, which also means like the way you crop it, things like that. A lot of editors, you know, what's happened, I think, with the internet is that the editors have become... Uh, What's a nicer word than worse? <laughs> Let's just go with worse. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm okay Editors with that. They've become worse yeah. because they're, they become so like um, click, res uh, responsible for clicks and growing, all of that. Yeah. They just throw a lot of stuff up there. Yeah. And I don't think there's a, I don't know if there's a lot of people from the beginning because I think it just gets boring for a lot of them. Mm -hmm. They're just supposed to shoot a lot, you know, and, and then put a lot up there and see how many clicks they get and stuff. And it's that they, they get kills the creativity and I think it's unless people were able to shoot for themselves I think it kind of grew old for them after a while but there are still a lot of people yeah. around who are shooting um, but I think it, for them a lot of them it feels like a job mm -hmm. I give them a lot of credit they're out there all the time and they're doing their work and all of that um, but it, that makes me work harder because I think how lucky am I that I get to shoot what I want and where I want and things and, and it doesn't feel like a job yeah yeah, one of the things that I think has, has definitely changed in the, the 14 years that, that you've been doing this is how people dress and how people dress for the internet. I mean, I think it's, it's, 
it's crazy. It, it feels sort of strange, but you know, think back to 2005, it's, it's not just pre-Instagram, it's pre-iPhone. Like most people at that time are not walking around with a camera in their pocket, yeah. or at least not a very good camera. People aren't used to having their pictures taken constantly. Um, and nobody's thinking about the idea when they wake up in the morning that it's, it's likely that their outfit and their face will end up on the internet. Whereas now everybody's thinking about that all the time. And I mean, even if it's just going on Snapchat to their, you know, 10 best friends, yeah. like people, people think about that. Have you, have you noticed what that, what that has done to kind of like the, the fashion and style landscape? And does it, does it majorly impact how you, how you have to shoot? That's a good question. And, um, and I've got a good answer. Perfect. <laughs> um, you know, there's a couple of elements to that. You know, the one thing I will challenge, a lot of people say that, well, you know, now fashion shows, people just get dressed up to be shot, and now they're so much more conscious on what they're wearing, which I say that's, it's maybe a little bit the opposite. You, oh, interesting. Because when you started, the reason I started going to the shows in the beginning, people weren't being photographed. But if you think about it, and this is what I knew, because before I was going to the shows for myself doing the sartorialist, when I had a showroom, I had a showroom for a couple of years, I was, almost all my designers were doing fashion shows. So I was going to them a lot and helping them put them on and all of that. And the difference from back then was that um, at that time, stylists were going to the shows. And people didn't really know. They knew some of the famous stylists, like Corinne Reitfeld, you know, started as more of a stylist before she was a Paris Vogue and uh, Emmanuel Alt. Um, you know, a lot of these, um, Joe McKenna, people like that, they were stylists going to the shows. And the one way that they could up their vis visibility and potentially get new jobs was looking great mm -hmm. at the shows. So it's not that people weren't dressing to go to the shows. This, you know, a lot of these stylists just weren't known to the outside world, but the experience of going to a fashion show is you had the editors in the front and you had a lot of people, either top line stylist or a step below them trying to get noticed, give me a chance, hire me to style this shoot and blah, blah, blah. So the thing that shifted is now stylists, a lot of them don't have a big social media, um, uh, audience. So now they're not getting the tickets and they're replaced by influencers and people like that, that maybe, you know, just don't have as good a style as some of these people who literally it was their job to have great style. So that has kind of, for me, thinned the pool of who there is potentially to shoot at Fashion Week. Um, but, you know, the one thing that was kind of nice is that I like kind of being on the street and kind of being a little bit invisible and blending in and shooting when I want to shoot and kind of either I stop someone and shoot them specifically, you know, very full frontal kind of an August Sander kind of way, or, you know, I like to shoot in kind of, you know, moments and more spontaneous moments. And so when there weren't as many other people doing what I do around, I could stop them and, and do more of an August Sander kind of full portrait, a little bit more thought out. But then when everyone else started coming around the editors didn't want all that attention. They would go into the tents right away or into the show right away. Um, and everyone was kind of pulling them oh, over here, a shot and there's shot. So I had to change either. I could complain about it or just change the way I shoot. So uh, now at the shows, I'm more mobile and I don't have as many kind of posed shots. Maybe there's some portraits, but my shooting style had to change, mm. which I'm okay with. It's kind of fun that the way I shoot on the street is slightly different than how I shoot at fashion week. And I don't, Again, a thing that's great about shooting for myself is I don't have a number I have to shoot. You know, I know a lot of these guys that are shooting. I know Phil, who shoots for Vogue.com. They're not so tight on, but when he first started Vogue.com, I think they wanted a certain number of shots. Now they really trust his eye. 
But I think a lot of the other guys have to get us. They feel the pressure of getting a certain amount of shots. If I go to four shows and I don't get any shots, that's fine. You know, because then I, I trust that I put the effort in to be there. And if I didn't see anything, I didn't see anything. Yeah. Um, but I also still, um, you know, in some cities, like we're very lucky. Maserati likes to give us a Maserati to go around from to show to show in Milan. Not a bad but, way uh, to see the shows. Not a bad way, but you know that doesn't happen every time. And so, like a lot of times, I'm still walking from show to show, or I rent a bike. I mean, I probably take more different kinds of transportation in Paris. It's almost always a subway. So for me, even going to the shows is the shows one element of that day. But then I'm also because I'm I've learned those cities pretty well. I know the best route to walk from that show to that show that I might get something else. And it's the thing that people still respond are those unknown people and the in between shows and the. I mean, there was one time I was walking with with I think it was Tommy and Phil or it was Tommy and somebody else, and we were going from one show to another, and the three of us were walking, and there was a guy. That's, just really elegant old guy sitting at a outside a cafe in, in Paris and and I saw him and I wasn't going to raise any awareness not that these two guys would have shot them because they don't usually shoot that kind of thing we're walking and I I know he's back there and we're getting ready to cross the street and as soon as the light changes they start to walk and I turn around click click and get probably three good frames of him and then catch up and go and and it's a picture that will probably be in the next men's book after after the India book I'm working on menswear book and um you know, it's it's just constantly. It's not just the shows for me. That's all those in between moments in the yeah. subway or whatever. So things have changed, but in a lot of ways they haven't changed because I haven't changed the way that I shoot. Hmm. That's great. I mean, one of the, one of the things I wanted to definitely ask you about is 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 that is your process, right? Uh, and you know, you talk to photographers and there's some, I guess, contention uh, about the the use of the words making photographs versus taking photographs. And I wonder where you come out on that. Do you think about making a photograph or are you taking something? I think I'm reacting. Okay. You know, to me, like, you know, there's photographers like Tim Walker, you know, who does great, beautiful, almost cinematic images, you know, um, you know, shoots for Vogue and W and a lot of these. And, and he dreams a photograph, you know, and sketches it out. And then he has a whole team that comes and builds the set and all of that. Or, yeah. you know, someone like Paolo Reversi, who, you know, also does very beautiful, almost painterly like photographs, you know, very uh, less, less about the set, but like very beautiful light and very soft focus. Some of them are even out of focus. And um, he dreams an image and then goes and does it. Where I like to go out and be surprised. I like the challenge of, you know, I could be out walking all day, and at the end of the day, not get anything, and maybe I'm on my way back. And now, after like say it's summer and it's been 90 degrees and I'm hot and I'm tired, um, and then maybe I'm you know two blocks away from my house, and bam, finally the shot. Finally, I've got a shot. And now, quick, even though I'm tired or whatever, I've got to decide quickly. You know, do I shoot with the sun? Do I shoot the sun behind them? Do I put them in shadow? How do I approach them? You know, you approach a girl different than you approach a guy, you approach an old lady different than you approach, you know, uh, uh, if, if I want to shoot a kid, you know, then you've got to talk to the parents first. I, that's the thing that drives me. I love the challenge of like, okay, here's my chance. Now I got to figure this thing out. You know, it's like, um, it's almost like a sport in the yeah. sense that like, here it is. And so I don't really feel that I'm taking a photograph, but I think I'm reacting. And then what I think I've gotten better with over the years is is 
um, being very charming for about five or 10 minutes and getting the person <laughs> to kind of be a part of this process. Yeah. I think they can tell from my natural excitement that um, it's two things. It's part natural excitement, but it's also not being so excited that uh, I'm going to be crushed if they say no. It's right. also being a little cool. I know, you know, you have to somehow with um, non-verbally communicate this idea of, I would like to really take a shot of you. I think I can get a really good shot. If you're walking, you know, you, I kind of watch where they're going and see which direction and they kind of look ahead of them to see, all right, I should stop them, you know, at this spot because then I don't have to move them much. Um, because then I can pretty much do it right there and I don't have to ask them to move, but maybe for whatever reason I stop them here and I say, you know, uh, you're walking in this direction, the light over there is going to be really good. And I think if you're expressing that, they say, they think, oh, he's going to try and take a good picture of me. Okay, I'll give you a couple <laughs> minutes. <laughs> you know, why not? And, but I think there's a way of doing it where they feel like if they say no, all right, yeah, no problem. Um, and so that's the thing that drives me. You know, if I had, and you know, my father, like I said, was a writer, but he also did a lot of film production and things. And so I used to go to the set with him when he would say, oh, you know, I'm doing something for RCA. I'm filming this new TV thing. And I, and he was doing this in Indiana, very kind of industrial stuff. And I'd think, wow, that sounds cool. And I'd get there on the set and fall asleep within minutes thinking this is the boringest thing I've ever <laughs> seen. He's looking at TV, probably like you guys shooting watches. He's spraying it down this and that, looking at the monitor. Now I've got to do this and that. And I'm like, wow, that is so boring. I never <laughs> want to be a photographer. I never want to do any of this stuff. Because I didn't know you could just take a camera and walk around outside. Um, and that's the thing. I mean, and let's be honest, it's not a bad life. I mean, you find fashionable people at nice restaurants and the stores I like to go to, the bookstores. I mean... I feel a little, not because I know I am working, but you know, you feel a little guilty that I get to go around and nice, beautiful day and walk around and I have to make it happen when it happens. But other than that, tough day at the office. Not a bad day. Yeah. What's the worst (laughs) thing that happens? I spend too much on a pair of shoes during the day. (laughs) Occupational hazard. I think we have similar ones uh, right here at the Hodinkee office. I bet you guys do. You guys Uh, didn't get tagged for any of that taxes thing that I read about on Mr. Crazy Waco's. Instagram. We did not. Yeah, thankfully. luckily good. none of us. Uh, which brings us to a good point, which is that you were at Basel World last week. Yes. Yeah. So we're recording this just after we got back from Basel World. So uh-huh. have you ever been before? No. That was, was my first time Basel World. What was that like? Well, it was fantastico. It was fantastic. <laughs> um, although that's an Italian accent, and these were, I guess, well, we were in the German part. We right? were indeed. Yeah. The yes. very Swiss it's, German part. Yes, the very German part. Uh, you know, it's. Um, you know, I've got, I go to Pitti a lot, which is a trade show. I went to Milan Unica, which is a fabric trade show in Milan. Um, so, I mean, it's a trade show. And, like, when I used to have the showroom, I used to do trade shows here. So, like, I've been to trade shows. This one is a little more showy, you know, with sure. these huge... Yeah. When they said three-story spaces, I didn't think they really meant three-story. But, like, these are huge. They're incredible. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, these buildings. And even the building that they have it in, you know, is incredible. Mm-hmm. So... The show is incredible. The, the fanfare, you know, and the and the cinema of it is incredible. Um, and you know, and I, I, to be honest, this was the only thing. That's why I was really pushing to talk about photographs right away because I don't know a lot about watches. I like them, um, but I'm a very bad guy. I'm a very bad dude. You know, <laughs> okay. I don't know much Go about on. cars. Yeah. I don't know much about watches. You're much I don't know off. anything about yeah. fishing. You're yeah. way better off, yeah. 
Yeah. I could hem a pair of pants. I helped Jenny with her looks. Sure. But give me a car. People ask me, what kind of car do you have? Like if I rent a car and I have to go somewhere and sign in. And they say, what kind of car do you have? And I'm like, uh, gray. <laughs> well, gray. I'm, I'm in the same boat, which is a tough one to be in in this office. But I bet. Yeah. I bet. So I, li- I mean, I like watches and all of that conceptually because they are beautiful. And I've, I've got two nice Rolex watches that were, very, that were gifts. Um, but I don't know. The one thing though, that I, I will say is, you know, like any kind of design thing, whether it's like you see this with, with sneakers and like with a company like Nike, there's a period where they'll go down a design, um, vein and like every single sneaker they do is great, greater than you're like, I can never buy all of these while wow, they are in such a great vein right now. And then they go to another area and it's like, wow, they look horrible right now. <laughs> and the one thing I'd, I'd say with Basel world is, you know, I know there's more pressure now, you know, the less I think my perception is fewer guys wear watches. Now it's more about passion. It's yep. almost like wrist jewelry for guys yeah. and with the whole secondary market and everything that I think everybody feels more pressure. And I'm a little surprised, you know, when I look at some of the designs coming out and I'm like, those are not good designs. Like they don't, I don't know. And I don't know enough about that world and who's really buying them, but like a lot of diamonds and really sparkle and bling and stuff. And I think so many of the watches that a lot of guys seem to love are like, they're more masculine and they're more, and even the ads now, you know, you see a lot of guys with watches and they're out doing boats and this and that. Those guys aren't wearing, aren't uh, out on boats with those watches. Sure. Like it's, I think there's a di- little disconnect that the the watch world has to figure out yeah. um, what they want to be. And it, to me, a lot of it feels a little over-designed. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the one thing to consider, and, and we see this every year, is that Basel World is, is truly a, a global fair, and half of the watches sold on this planet are sold to Chinese people. Hmm. So then, all of a sudden, Bulgari, who I think you were with, you know, right. has to design something that's appealing to the average Chinese person. Twenty, we'll say, twenty-three-year-old male Chinese watch buyer who does want a diamond-covered whatever. Yeah, uh, and to Scott Schumann, you know, and I think yeah. it's really hard to play to both of those camps equally, you know. Yeah, it's well, definitely but I mean, tough. every design, you know, Prada has that. Mm-hmm. Every company has that. And, um, so no, I mean, again, maybe it's that mystery thing. Like I, you know, there's a lot of shoe brands, guys that do, you know, small shoe brands that do a lot of handwork and bespoke and things like that. Mm-hmm. And I meet with a lot of them and they show me these shoes and I want to say, whisper to them, don't show, don't show fashion editors that, that shoe. Cause they'll say, well, you know, this star wanted us to make this shoe with right. this crazy. And I'm like, that does not look good. You should not be showing that there. You don't have to tell us everything. Yeah. yeah. You know, or you yeah. can keep some things regional. Right. Yeah. You know, don't show me the ugly one because it works in Kadistan or whatever. Right. Not that Kadistan doesn't have great style, <laughs> but not everything has to be on. So that's, and that is the trick I think of the new media yeah. is the oversharing and the over, you know, I understand when sometimes people do something for a particular region keep it there, yeah. you know, or I don't know. It's a, it's a really, I find it a fascinating world and I like it, but I just think it's an, um, an odd vein right now that when you're looking through and I'm, you know, I follow a lot of people who were there, you guys and way and a lot of other people who are real watch enthusiasts sure. and, um, and I'm just flipping through. I'm like, wow, that's ugly, 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 ugly. And the ones that are good really stand out. Who knows? It'll yeah. be interesting to see how it goes. Did you have anything you saw that like stands out in your mind as being like, I saw this thing and it was amazing? Well, 
the thing that was tricky is we were there the day before it started. Ah, okay. And, you know, a lot of those things you have to be kind of invited in and yeah, things sure. like that. And because we were there specifically um, with uh, Bulgari, mm-hmm. we didn't really feel that we could go into the Chanel thing and all of that. Fair yeah. enough. Um, but I'm curious to learn more about I mean, that's why I'm very honored to be here with you guys. Like, it's a world I would like to learn more about. And like anything, I think, like with design or anything else, you have to find your in. Yeah. You know, like, what's my in? How do how do I approach this this new design field? Whether mm-hmm. it's cars, whether it's um, watches, or whatever, like music. You know, you find your vein. Yeah, and that's so I'm still searching for my vein. Well, which sounds very drug related. It's, it's <laughs> totally not. Not, not, not at all, searching guys. for my vein. That does not sound right. Not at all. You guys don't do like drops and like. Uh, yeah, Stephen does constantly. Yeah. yeah. Con- Wait, what? Not <laughs> <laughs> supposed to tell them. <laughs> Uh, one thing I want to make sure we, we get to talk about is your upcoming book, uh, mm-hmm. all about India, which is probably yeah. not what most people are used to seeing, uh, in terms of your work, but can you tell us about how this project came about and what, what we can kind of hope to see? Yeah. I mean, um, I love doing kind of the unexpected, you know, and I like challenging myself and, um, challenging the audience. You know, a lot of people, um, kind of play down to their audience, you know, or say, oh, you know, I hear a lot of guys say, well, you know, the only photographs do well for me on Instagram are photographs of me. So they end up putting a lot of photographs of them and not what I, the fascination of who I think they are, you know, their taste level and everything else. And um, so I never let the amount of likes um, decide what kind of things I shoot because my audience is 65% women, hmm. 35% men. So the best men's shot is never going to do as well as a reasonable women's shot. Yeah. But I still I think I still post them and, and treat them with the same level of respect and the audience with the same level of respect that they're smart enough to be able to say, you know, that's a girl's look, but I love the color there or the pattern. Like we can still, when you're looking at things for design or inspiration, doesn't matter if it's a guy or girl all the time. You know, I see things that Jenny wears and my, my fiance, Jenny Walton, um, at Jenny M Walton. We'll link it, link, <laughs> link it up in the notes. Um, Gray's favorite. And all the time I'm totally inspired by the way she puts together things and colors and combinations. Um, but so, you know, it's this idea of like, I, I like to challenge uh, myself and I like to challenge the audience. And so for a while, I've been going to other places in between show times and things. And, you know, I've shot in India or I've shot in China and Peru and Brazil and Japan and Moscow and almost everywhere, you know, South Africa, North uh, Morocco, Australia, you know, almost everywhere. And... If people have only started looking at the site more over the last two years, they haven't seen as much of that because a lot of any in-between time I've been going to India and not sharing those photographs. But the reason I I did this book is that someone like Steve McCurry is a huge influence. Sure. And I always saw the sartorialist being something that was really about design and style more than fashion. You know, yeah. fashion I love and it's second nature to me. So I don't really have to try to the fashion part. That works very naturally for me. What's a challenge is to go out and shoot with the same level of respect and the same strong eye. Some guy in India that might not be dressed fashionably, but there's no question that he is super charismatic. And anyone would look at the photograph and go, wow, that guy is just, he's got something. You yeah. know, that's what I love shooting. And it, I'm not saying that those clothes are necessarily fashionable, but it's a great portrait and I can do that portrait in a way nobody else can. So when I was thinking about what the next challenge would be, I had, I had done three books with Penguin and they all went very well. Um, 
But I was looking at a place like India. I'd been there a couple of times and I was thinking about what would be the next book. And um, I thought, uh, I've never seen a book on India that looks the way I see India. Because when I've gone, I've gone to fashion weeks and music festivals, but I've also gone to very simple places. And there's a diversity there of the life that you don't see, I haven't seen in any other book that really captures that variety. And so I thought that's a great end for me. That's something I could do unlike anyone else. So I financed it myself. I wanted to see first if I could really do that. So I probably shot 75% of the book before I even started um, um, showing it to publishers. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, it was under my own finance and, and it just Jenny and I did everything. We had to find the guides. We had to decide where to go and how to get into it. But, you know, I mean, that's another thing where I feel like it's a really guilty pleasure. My life right now is getting to go to India and learn all this stuff and, and put myself in these fantastic really crazy different experiences, you know, like a year ago at this time, literally a year ago at this time, I had just done all of um, Women's Fashion Week. I was supposed to come back to New York, um, have a week off to get prepared to go to India, but then a job came up in Paris, so I stayed there. I sent Jenny back with my winter clothes. I bought summer clothes uh, at Uniqlo and at some sportswear places, some sporting goods stores, and went straight to India. So I went in one week from staying at the Peninsula in Paris, with a very nice chic hotel, to a hotel in Odisha, which is like the middle part of India to the east, that is just a very simple place. There is no big city around there or anything. Staying in very, very simple hotels where you have to ask for toilet paper and you have to ask for a towel. So mm -hmm. not the Peninsula. Not the Peninsula. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, I was prepared for that, you yeah. know, and, it, it, and I had an equal amount of fun in both situations. I loved being in Paris and shooting that and having that lifestyle. And then a week later, being in this place where it's just, I almost decided it'd be easier because I hadn't planned on the guys in the other rooms smoking, Oof. which kind of messed up my asthma. So I thought maybe next time I'd sleep in the car. But I mean, how fun. I just felt like that was one of the few times where I thought, wow, I'm really lucky to get to live such a different kind of life, you know, and have that in one thing. And to work on this book and to, I think, surprise people. Everyone I've shown has been really like, wow, it looks like you, but like a new version of you, like an updated kind of version. Um, and then, you know, when I started uh, shopping it around, the re reception was very good. Mm. But anyway, so that was kind of the concept was to show India in a way that I had never seen in a book before, to challenge myself and um, challenge my photography, you know, to yeah. see if I could really do this. And, and it worked so far. Awesome. Well, due to a terrible scheduling decision on my part, uh, I actually have to bail, but I'm going to leave you with Ben. All right. Uh, Ben's going to finish things up, do our Hodinky questionnaire. Okay. Get a little uh, cultural recommendation from you and uh, take us home. That all right, Ben? My pleasure. All right. I'll, uh, I'll see you gentlemen later. Thanks again for joining us, Scott. Thank you. Thank you very much. And now I'll look at this week's sponsor. 25 years after its debut, the Longa One is still the first watch that comes to mind when people think about a Longa With its asymmetric dial layout and outsized date complication, the piece is instantly recognizable and has remained virtually unchanged since its initial release in 1994. There now exists an entire family of Longa One models, including the Longa One Moon Phase with its unique day-night indication, or the astonishing Longa One Turbion Perpetual Calendar. To celebrate the Longa One's 25th anniversary, the brand is launching a collection of special editions, presenting one new piece per month. 
The celebratory watches mirror familiar Longa One models with white gold cases, two-tone dials made of solid silver, blue numerals and hands, and balance cocks with a special blue-filled 25th anniversary engraving. You can read about the first few releases, the Longa One, the Grand Longa One Moon Phase, and the Little Longa One, right now on Hodinkee. But you'll have to stay tuned through October to get to know all of the celebratory releases. To learn more about Elang and Zona and the Langa One, visit elanganzona.com. All right, let's get back to the show. Should we do it? Are we recording? Yes. So you're recording so wait, the whole so wait, thing, right? But I want to hear a little bit about, can I ask you a question? Of course, yeah. Because yeah. you started about the same time, right? I did. So I, I should uh, say for, for readers at home, we, we are now Stephen Less. Stephen had, had to go to a swimming lesson, I think, right? Yeah. He's learning, he's learning <laughs> to swim. Taekwondo, that's right. Just swimming, Kai. Swim. It's Taekwondo underwater. Yeah. So it's much more gentle. Yes, No one right. gets hurt doing that. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. Now, just kidding, everybody. Steven is off to a very, very chic uh, event. He's going to the premiere of Veep, the final season of Veep, as a guest of uh, no less than Frank Rich, I believe. So very, very important man, for sure. Uh, so we are still here with, with Scott Schumann. Uh, and I think Scott has a question for me, I think. Yeah. Well, I didn't think of it ahead of time. I didn't realize we were already back on the air. Thanks for telling me before we started. <laughs> but, um, I mean, what's been your... A crazy ride. I mean, you must have had a crazy ride with all of this too. Like it's, going from a magazine, going because yeah. it was a blog first, yep. and then you went print. Mm -hmm. And how is Instagram? Like, how do you manage all these different medias? It's a uh, it's a lot. It's it's, it's a lot. I mean, you know, the 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 one say where I'd say where where our path, yours and mine, kind of diverted mm -hmm. is that you know you kind of kept it really pure, and and you know the sartorialist is still very much what what it was back then. I, I really respect that. I, I kind of sold out in in some ways, in in a <laughs> lovingly way. You know, I say that about myself. Uh, you know, we we started doing e-commerce in 2012, uh, just accessories like straps, basically, and that was literally me and then me and Stephen. You know, kind of shipping these things out from my apartment in the West mm -hmm. Village, uh, and then you know in 2014 or so, I had the opportunity to to sell the company to a big media group, which we've discussed. And, uh, and at the same time, I had become friends with these big Silicon Valley guys that were just watch guys. Like, they just mm -hmm. liked watches. They liked what we were doing. We were, even back then, the only guys around, really. And they said, oh, like, don't sell the company. Like, let, let's do this together. And so those guys, you know, invested a little bit of money, and then we started hiring folks, et cetera. And now we're full e-commerce. You know, we, it's, it's a huge part of our business. We have the print magazine, which you mentioned. But why, but why do you think you sold out? I mean, the, the sense I get from it, I don't yeah. think of you as a sellout. I just think of you being smart and being able to do it in a bigger way because you still, I, I think a sellout is someone who you can feel doesn't have the passion and they're still doing it. Yeah. With you guys, I feel like it's still a passion and oh, you're giving is. them what they want. It, it is. And the, and the one thing you should know about me is I'm, I'm, I'm pretty self-deprecating. You know, I, I, I think that uh, I, I don't consider myself a sell in any way. Yeah, I mean, no, I, think, I don't think so. You know, if you, if you saw me last week in <clears throat> Basel, we just missed each other. Like I get really excited about Basel. Like I love, I mean, that's yeah. like, it's a, it's a Super Bowl for us, you know? Yeah. And we are, are doing things the way that I think they should be done. And I think if you look at our industry, which is even more conservative than, than yours in the fashion world, these guys are so behind the times and the experience is so shitty for consumers. And the, the product itself is so kind of stagnant that they, they I felt that the industry needed somebody to kind of just like gently kind of prod them and push them forward. Uh, and that's what we're doing. You know, so, you know, after after 10 years or I should say eight years of, of buying watches as a consumer, I just thought back of all those terrible experiences that I had as a consumer and said, like, let's fix those. Now we have the money, the resources, the, the the everything to go ahead and be a retailer and make things better. So we did that. And, you know, and, and on the media side, of course, you know, I didn't know anything about watches. I didn't know what a publicist was. I didn't know what you know marketing was. I didn't know anything. Mm -hmm. I just knew what I liked. And so I started writing about them, taking pictures. 
putting them up on online and that's it. And I think, you know, you're from Indiana. I'm from Rochester, New York, which is basically Indiana, you know? Yeah. It, it's really... Just a little bit below. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it, it's one of those things like this is not a world I grew up in at all. You know, I mean, we have a mutual friend in, in Way and Way really grew up in this world. You know, yeah. Way, Way is a part of this community. His father was a was an ambassador uh, for Rolex as, as he was growing oh, up. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah. Way's father was the ambassador to Singapore, but like he, yeah. he was, he received a grant from Rolex when Way was 10, you know? Oh. So he really grew up in this world, and I really admire that. And that's, but that is how he—that's he, how he views the world. I view this world as somebody that is not from it, and says, "Holy shit! Like this is a crazy thing." But because of that, it gives me the kind of wherewithal to say, "Like nobody needs this stuff at all." So if it's not fun, then people are gonna people are gonna stop. People are yeah. gonna leave, you know. Yeah. And so everything we do is is about bringing more people into this world that can be really rewarding and really enjoyable from an intellectual level potentially a financial level if you do it the right way. Uh, and we want people to have fun, you know, because again, there are no doctors prescribing people to buy watches. Okay. So I'm going to, um, give you the permission yes. to stop selling to stop saying that you sold out. And instead of using the phrase sold out, yes. I want you for now on to start saying I doubled down. There I was on the down. edge of doing this and I was really enjoying this. And instead of like kind of going on and doing this thing, I doubled down. Yep. I got investors. I started giving the audience what they want, blah, blah, blah. That's it. That's what you did. You yeah. doubled down. You didn't sell out. You well, doubled down. You gave them what they wanted. You created a community of people who are passionate about it. I mean, that's the one thing I don't know as much about that world, but you, yeah. I always respect people who are able to build a community of people who are really passionate. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the things I like to photograph, you know, is, um, communities where people are really sincere and passionate and really love what they're talking about. Like, you know, you know, if you want to get somebody worked up, you just say, say like, Oh, Hey, I think this cog in my watch thing is, oh, you've got a cog one. Yeah, well, let me tell you, that's the femur. Blah, 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 blah. You, it's great to watch people. I love watching people get passionate about the thing yeah. that they're passionate. About. I wish. And the thing I always feel bad about is people who don't have a passion. You know, there are people who, who don't have that thing. Right. I don't care what passion people have, but like, I always feel, I love watching people talk about it and get yeah. excited about it. I might not understand what they're saying. And sure. that to me was, Basel World yep. was a lot of people getting around, you know, talking, almost like talking soccer. Right. No idea what they're talking about, but it's fun to watch guys. You can really, tell that they care. Yeah. yeah. Really and, care about it and love it. And, yeah. And, and I, I think what, what we've been able to do is, you know, again, I, I was just a, you know, a, a normal guy from upstate New York. Both my parents were teachers. I think we provide a home for a lot of people that, that are, that are really similar to me, you know, mm -hmm. and that is, you know, I wasn't, I was a good student. I wasn't the best student. I was a good athlete. I wasn't the best athlete. I was just, just a guy, you know, middle-class upbringing, just a white guy, you know, nothing, nothing special there. And I think there I see are, I have more work on your self-esteem that yeah. we're going to have to do. I'm going to have to think about this when I get back to you. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, and I think that there's so many guys that, that fall into that. And so it's like, yeah, like, you know, look, it, you know, I, I still could very easily be working for UBS, the big bank, yeah, very easily. You know, that my, my life is, is one decision away from still being there. You know? <laughs> and I think when you think of it that way, it's like, you know, I'm basically creating a home or we've created a home for all those guys that didn't take that chance and didn't leave and go off and start a, a website about, you know, X, Y, and Z. Uh, so I, I'm extremely proud of what we built, honestly. Um, and you know, it's just been the, the, the most difficult thing over the past few years has, has been the people, frankly, you know, the, there's been so many people that have been so instrumental in, in our growth. Steven, who you obviously know yeah. he was just yeah. here. Will, who's one of our earliest employees still yeah. around mm -hmm. Jack, there, there's a whole bunch of folks, but then there are other people that, that, that were really in some ways detrimental. And I think, you know, yeah. really managing 
you know, really just having expectations for people uh, is really difficult and saying like, hey, I'm, I'm giving you not only my, my financial future, which is in this company, but also this is my life, you know, just like, like your project is your life. Uh, and I, I think sometimes people forget that, that like, you know, this is really important to not only me, but several of the people at, at this company. Yeah. So, well, people, you know, people are you were going to ask me questions just to kind of dovetail into that right now. Yes. Um, I know we're going to do some questions and, and I got a little preview and one of them was what was some of the best advice you had ever gotten? Yes. And I don't remember if he didn't say it in like a super grand way, but I remember when my dad had his own business, I, like I mentioned before, and he was kind of a production company. He was, he, I think he thought of himself as a writer, but he could, he was just very smart. You know, he went yeah. he grew up in North Dakota, right? So one, again, one step above Rochester, but <laughs> North Dakota. And, you know, he just taught himself everything, you right. know, and, and he would all, all the time say, well, you know, I'm too dumb to know I don't know that or that I can't do that. And that was one piece of advice, not the one I'm getting to, but like this idea that like, don't get into your head so much that you can't just figure out how to go do it and right. do it. Um, but one thing that he really impressed on me is, you know, don't go get a bunch of employees, right? Do as much as you can yourself because once you start getting a bunch of employees, then it's their life that you have to worry about. And they start getting, and yeah. very early, you know, I had thought about doing um, an e-commerce site and doing more of, a, of a, a news fashion news site, you know, having it more mm -hmm. like a style.com or something like that. And I actually worked quite a bit on it, hired two people and got almost to like three days away from launch and mm -hmm. then realized, I don't want that to be my life. Right. I, I don't want... You know, I love, and that's a, and that's a real soul searching moment when you decide I'm not, I, I'm sure I could make money. I'm sure yeah. I could do this stuff. But what I love about my life is being able to pick up the camera, go walk outside. Nobody's calling me. No one's giving me crap. I don't have to answer to anyone and no one's looking to me for answers. Yeah. You know, I lived that life of having a showroom or working with designers. And I mean, there's been times when I thought, oh, it'd be fun to do like a more long-term collaboration with someone designing a collection or something. And I've had a lot of offers to do that. Sure. But I think... When I'm out walking around on 9th Street, I want someone calling me up about buttons. Right. <laughs> um, you know, or a late shipment in this. I've yeah. done that world, and it's fun, but it's not that fun. And I, and the one thing you realize, you know, you have to decide, am I an artist? How much, How important is money? Like, I've been able to make enough money to have a nice life, but, you know, I'm not taking helicopters anywhere. And um, but at the same time, I don't have to do anything that I don't want to do, or right. I can decide to do this India book and, and do it the way I want to do it. Yeah. But at the same time also decide, what am I going to do with, you know, 5 million more dollars? Like, I don't need that. I, I don't need to buy a, a car. I'm not dying to buy a car. I'm not dying to buy this thing or that thing. What I'm dying to do is keep walking around on the streets yeah. and keep shooting and making a catalog of images that I'm going to be really proud of. Right. And a big way of doing that was not bringing people in. Yeah. And, and, and the I, things that go with it, all this distraction, everything goes with it. And as I said earlier, I mean, that, that's what I really admire about you because there are times, you know, in, in my current life, again, which I'm very proud of, that I'm just like, fuck man, like I just want to be on my own. I just want to go, go back to the days when it's just me, nobody to answer to it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It grays out. <laughs> but so, you know, right, we can handle it from here. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I think, you know, it, it's one of those things where you just have to make the decision for yourself. And I made the decision to raise a little bit of capital. And again, I have no regrets about it. And hopefully someday I'll be able to go back and kind of do what I want to do, whatever that is. But I, I think, you know, your notion of like believing, you know, like I, I always fancied myself a writer. I fancied myself a photographer. I fancied myself an entrepreneur. I didn't know I was any of those things until I started this. And I yeah. think, you know, the, the fact that like you didn't pick up a camera until you were how old? 30... Yeah, 32, 33, something like that. I mean, th th that is wild considering, you know, how many, how many young, young photographers we have 
around today, right? I mean, yeah. what's the average age of a street style photographer now? 25? Younger, probably. Yeah, but I mean, I didn't even... I think the reason it worked for me is that I loved photography, and I loved it as a subject. So I, you know, even before I picked up the camera, I knew who Avedon was and Penn sure. and Weber and all these guys. Um, but because I didn't study it and I didn't um, try to emulate anyone too much, I was able to create my own look, you know, like... Uh, I couldn't do that in fashion design because I was too heavily influenced by Armani or too, when I was younger. And, um, so I knew I could not design my own thing because I would just be too influenced and picking up a camera and do it. I, I knew I had my very specific thing I wanted to try and achieve. And I think the reason I felt good about it is I knew it didn't look like anyone else. And I was proud of that. And, um, but also, you know, at that time, it was like I was saying, we said earlier, it was a golden moment because there were no expectations. Right. It didn't cost any money. No one, you know, and that's another reason why it was the sartorialist and not my name. Because if it went horribly, I could be like, yeah, that sartorialist thing sucked. <laughs> Glad I didn't get involved with that. Um, and it took me probably three or four years of doing it and yeah. actually working for GQ and these, before I would tell anyone I was a photographer because I didn't want to be good or just pass. I wanted to be really good. Right. And, and that's maybe the one thing that, again, kind of separates me from some of the other ones. I think they want to be good and they like the lifestyle and they like whatever, or they've kind of fallen into it as a job, mm. where for me it's a super passion, you know, and, and I want to do something I'm proud of. And, you know, I'd never say I'm the best photographer because I'm not, but I think um, I'm at least just creating a unique vision that looks like me. All, all I ever wanted to do was create photographs that look like me, that people say, that's a Scott Schumann photograph yeah. um, because of these different elements. You know, there's a stylistic element. There's an interesting light. The person he chose to shoot was interesting. Mm. Um, the best are that way. Yeah. And, um, and the way that you do that, I think the advice that my father gave me to go back to that, maybe the way he phrased it was keep a low overhead. Whatever you do in business, yes. keep a low overhead. And a lot of that is having very few employees. Yeah. We work from the apartment. Um, one of the things I think happens with a lot of young kind of influencers or bloggers is to prove that they're big and to, to impress people. They want to have a lot of employees. Yeah. They want to have a big office, all that before they have the ability to do it. Yeah. And um, for me, it was always the opposite. You are currently talking head. to a man who has three floors in this building. By the right. Way. So you're, pre you're preaching to the, to the, I don't even know what, the <laughs> guy who made a big, big mistake. Just kidding. Um, no, you doubled, yeah, down. We doubled down. Until you start saying it, you got to start right. saying it. Yeah, doubled I doubled down. down. I believed in myself. Yeah. I'm going to ask some really basic questions <laughs> that we didn't cover with Steven. Okay. Uh, first of all, the name, Sartori the Sartorialist. Uh -huh. How'd you come up with it? Well, I always wanted to be a superhero, mm -hmm. and I thought my superpower could be mockery. Really? <laughs> You're going to wear that? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. That was not it. But it sounds good, right? It does. Um, no, uh... You're going to wear that? I should have said it that way. <laughs> that, that's a crime. That, ah, shit, that's what I should have said. My superpower is stopping people that are getting ready to make a fashion crime. That jacket, that's the crime. <laughs> anyway, um, <laughs> don't put any of that in. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. Um, the name of the sartorialist came, I mean, I knew the word sartorial. Sure. And to me, the idea, you know, the, the word sartorial is this concept of having something bespoke and something well-made. Mm -hmm is sartorial for me. And so I thought that a sartorialist would be somebody who did something very well. But the, the thing that broke the mold a little bit was that for me, it, it, it had to be someone who was able to do a look very well, but it didn't have to be a tailored look. Right. 
You know, they just had to do their look, whatever that look was. It could be skateboard, it could be vintage, it could be goth, whatever. Um, and so for me, it was conceptual. You know, a sartorialist was someone that had a look and they did it very well. Yeah. But in the beginning, you know, people we were pretty upset because they would hear that it was a street style site. And then, so they would go looking for kids wearing t-shirts and skateboards and they'd say, that guy's wearing a suit and tie. He's not street style. Right. Well, yeah, he is. He's on the street like everybody else. Mm-hmm. Um, or they would see the word sartorial. They knew what it was and expect everybody to be wearing a suit and tie. And, you know, half the photographs were women. Hmm. So in the beginning, you know, I had to stick to my guns and I knew I was on the right path or I didn't really care if I was on the right path. This was the path I wanted to go on. Yeah. Um, and I, I guess I've just always, as opposed to thinking down and to the customer, to the, to the reader and the audience, I always expected the best from them and always expected to challenge them and that they would be up to the challenge and that, you know, I wasn't going to run a wild west site where they could say anything. Um, and so people learned that very quickly, you know, and when it was the blog initially, we could check the comments and only put through the ones that we thought were reasonable. Mm-hmm. They didn't have to agree with me or agree with what the person wore, sure. but they had to say it respectfully. Right. And I'm shocked how many people to this day still don't do that. Don't run their sites that way. Yeah. And especially now in this call out culture where people get them and their audience to call people out and really bring people down and all that. It's, it's just not what I do. You can disagree, but you have to do it respectfully. Yeah. And so I think that's why the community was built um, so strongly where people felt like they could be on the site and talk about it, but they weren't going to get killed. Yeah. Um, and so that was really kind of the the concept behind the name. Yeah. And so you, with this name, have, have created a, a whole kind of like subculture of influencer slash photographer that, that puts an IST on the end of, of a word. You know? yeah. And I, I actually have a, a very good friend uh, who is the doggest. Actually. Oh yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And I don't know if you've run into him, but he yeah. Uh, I mean, Our I'll, dog has been on the dog. No kidding. Yes. Oh, that's great, Charlie. Yes. So uh, Elias is his name, and, okay. and he has a, a wonderful business. Yeah. Taking pictures of dogs, but yeah. I mean, without and you, the there's no way. And the cat. We right. ran into that a lot, and Absolutely. just so many of them, I can't even remember them all now. And there was a whole college subset of like, I don't know how they did. There was something like the college sartorialist or some version sure. of the world, and now people are playing with dots and all of this, and you know, it used to upset me a bit. But not that much because right. I felt like it just it just feeds a fire under me. I've just got to keep going. I yeah. can't worry about them. They don't have, you know, you again you hear it with like sports and sports talk radio. They could be more talented, they could be a better, they right. won't be able to outwork me and outthink me. Right. Out strategize me. You know, that's why I do the India thing or here or when everybody else is going that direction, I go that direction. And mm-hmm. and I just believe in the audience that they're going to appreciate that. And yeah. I think the audience does respect that. Or if they don't and they decide, I only want fashion from you, I don't want the India stuff, well, then it's up to me to find an audience that wants that, mm-hmm. that it is willing to accept that kind of combination. You know, like when Instagram came around, um, you know, and the phones got really good, sure. I could shoot more in the moment, interiors and things like that. So interiors became a lot bigger thing. Um, so again, if the people only wanted that one thing from me, then I had to work harder to... Um, make up for the audience I lost for that, but rebuild it with people that liked interiors or liked um, landscapes or whatever. So it's sure. always been a, an evolution. Yeah. And if you lose some people, then I just have to work harder to bring in new ones. Hmm. A few more questions for you, just yeah. while I have you. Okay. If you're going to get one suit made, where do you have it made? Well, I've got a lot of friends. Are you crazy? I ain't answering that. You have it made in Italy. <laughs> Boom, there you go. <laughs> you what, have it what, made in Italy. Who's the guy in New York? Because I need a suit. 
So does he, for, them, for that matter. Ah, uh, the guy in New York. Well, you know, Mark Cho has a great place here, sure. the Armory, yep. and Drake's, you know, mm-hmm. like, that could be a very good place. Like, it's hard to beat um, Ralph, you know, Ralph Lauren does a great job. Um, you know, there are some good small tailors. Um, you know, it really kind of depends on, on what you're into. I think the thing that's really hard, and it's something I'll, I'll talk about in the men's book, is um, it's almost like finding a hairstylist. You know, someone can make a beautiful suit that is made great. Like, okay, I'll tell you a little story. I'm not going to mention what brand did it, but someone made a suit for me. They offered to make me a suit. Mm-hmm. And I went and told them exactly what I wanted. I had pictures and all this stuff. And they made the suit they wanted to make for me. Got it. And I put it on. I thought, well, oh my God, I look like a, uh, an ambassador, like a 70-year-old ambassador, which was not the look I was going for. And the unfortunate part is if it's made really well, it's like herpes, you know, you can never get rid of that beautifully made suit. You feel horrible throwing it away, but it's just not for you. Um, so picking who you're going to do that, that kind of understands conceptually what you want. Um, and a lot of that comes from looking at how the guy's dressed, you know, you, you know, like if you've got a barber and he just cannot understand a particular style, you're just going to be knocking your head against the wall trying to get them to do that. So I think there's a lot, and now with the internet, almost all these tailors have Instagram sites and all of that. So like my advice would be find someone who kind of A is into it and dresses, you know, because it really shows they still have a passion for it. And, and can you see them dressing kind of like that? Because if you change it too much, they're not going to be able to do it. It's going to be too hard. So, and you know, now so many of these tailoring guys, uh, uh, tailors, um, travel, Mm -hmm. you know, they do all the tour and everything. So even if it's a guy based in France, you know, like Chippinelli comes here, uh, you know, there's all kinds of people that come here all around the U S so there's really, you can almost get anybody. Who's the best dressed guy, you know, the best dressed guy I know. Uh, I don't know. I mean, that's a really hard right? Cause you know, it's like children. Right. I love them all for all their different kind of looks and everything they do. Um, I would say Pier Paolo maybe from Valentino. He always looks great. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I really respect someone like Armani, sure. you know, I mean, he's what 80 and I mean, right up until like 75, 70, he looked like a million bucks, but he dressed very simply. Um, a guy that a lot of people know, um, George Cortina, you know, he's because I, I was shooting him before anybody else. And I mean, he's big now on the internet and all of that. But like, again, he's a guy like Armani. He works out. He's got a great body. He dresses that body. Well, everything fits beautifully. And one of the things I wrote in the, I think the second or third book, I put a, I did a little chapter on him and said, you know, he is one of the consistently best dressed guys, but look at what he's really wearing. It's not a lot of fashion. It's not a lot of different color. It fit, 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 fit. And it fit, it looks sexy. It's not too tight. It's not too big. Like, that's really the key. Um, and if you look at, you know, historically, someone like um, Cary Grant mm-hmm. fit. And he didn't go too deep into fashion, you know. Like, you look at Cary Grant from the 30s all the way to the 70s, he still always kind of looks like Cary Grant. And it's because of fit. Um, uh, Fred Astaire, you sure. know, fit. And he had to dance, like he had to do all that stuff. So things had to fit great and look great while he was moving. Mm. Plus, he had a great eye, you know, so you can look at a still and say, wow, that's a great stripe with a dotted tie. And it's a... So I don't really, 
I think the way I, if I was using the sartorialist, the way I use it, the way I shoot it, and the sure. way I think people use it, is not looking for like the perfect answer. It's taking a little bit from this, taking a little bit from that, you know, taking in the third book, we did this kind of design challenge where we took a Prada runway picture, we turned it upside down on purpose, and I said, you know, uh, I challenge you to stop complaining about runway shows, how much the how much the clothes cost they're too fancy they don't live that's not my lifestyle whatever just look at what the free um inspiration they're giving you um in terms of color combinations pattern mixing genre mixing you can look at women's collections turn the picture upside down and just look at the free stuff that's what i do hmm. you know and, and i think any smart person will do that they can go to a furniture store and see a chair with a wallpaper and something else and go uh, that's I'm going to do that with my next suit. That color combination or that pattern mixing or like the India book, you see guys wearing three different plaids and that are um, porters in mm. Mumbai. Um, maybe they're some of the best dressed guys, yeah. you know, because they wear these three plaids and it's not thought out, but it's the unthoughtness of it that you look at and you go, oh my God, they just look so cool. Three plaids sounds pretty great right now. Right? It really does. And then... You know, they're all in super shape because they're just lifting stuff all day and they're in great shape and they're walking around and this and they're pretty well dressed. Hmm. Uh, Another question, just because we've got a lot of really nerdy technical guys. Okay. What is your kit? What do you shoot with? I shoot mainly with a Canon 5D Mm -hmm. with a 50 lens for the most part because it's lighter and it's uh, more open. Like that? And it's like how the eye sees. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, I just saw the other day I was at uh, Photo Care, where sure. I get to get a lot, buy a lot of my stuff, and there's a new 85 that Canon's doing that's not nearly as heavy as the old 85, mm-hmm. so I love the 85. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, if not, I don't want to say real street photographer, but if you're a you know, real street photographer and you don't know what you're going to shoot every day, then a 35 is too wide and it kind of gets weird at the edges. Um, an 85 or 80 is too narrow and heavy, and it's good for like portraits with chest up, waist mm-hmm. up, something like that. But if you got to get, you know, if you want to shoot someone full body, you almost have to cross the street to sure. get back far enough. So I find the 50 is pretty good. But um, if I'm doing a book like India, when we're in the car, maybe I'm sitting usually in the front seat, in the passenger seat, and I'll have three or four cameras below me, a 50, one ready with a 50, one with an 85, one with a... 120 maybe and something else mm-hmm. a 35 maybe or no i think i have a zoom that's like a 70 25 something so all those at my feet and i'll grab the one if i see something i'll grab one and then the guy knows that my my guide knows to grab the other ones or maybe he's sitting with one or two mm. um but the 50 is usually the go-to um but like in if i'm shooting something that's not just out on the street shooting on a typical day if i'm shooting a project like india and i'm in a lot of different scenarios and i have a guide that can carry stuff, then I've just got a nice variety of stuff so I can handle this situation the way I need to. Hmm. And, and do you work with Canon professionally? Or like no. Fun? No. You just, you just no. If you stuff? know somebody, it would no. be really nice. <laughs> Something tells me you could probably get that done. Everybody <laughs> says that. Nothing <laughs> happens. Screw Canon. No, sorry. <laughs> Nikon. Yeah. I'm open. <laughs> He's if available. Want, I'm yeah. available. <laughs> you know, like a, every other big brand. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Screw Canon. Um, <laughs> But you know, I don't care. You yeah. know, it's the if I get enough f- fun, nice collaborate collaborations and perks and stuff from other people. Yeah, I'm not gonna worry can't, about can't really that. Can't complain, right? Yeah, yeah. 
Okay, what were the, the questions for the questionnaire? Well, now I can throw it back in space and ask okay. watch recommendations. Oh, yeah. Okay. okay. Maybe something from yeah. Okay. okay, could you could you give me a recommendation for a watch mm. that like I like, you know, the Rolex and sure. it's uh, silver. It looks masculine. Like or no, a, you know what? Actually, and I take that back because I've got a watch like that. You know what I need? I need a watch with a leather band, okay. a brown leather band, uh-huh. something that's a little thinner. Mm-hmm. Um, cause like the one watch I saw that I, I truly do think is fantastic is that, um, watch that Bulgari did, um, that's thinner, mm-hmm. the Octo, Octo Finissimo. Finissimo, wonderful watch specifically yeah. because, you know, I like to have, and, and everything I write in my post is absolutely true. Yeah. You know, when, when I work out something with them, I say, they know, like, I don't know a huge amount about watches, yeah. but this is, I like that. I can talk about that. And this is how I'm going to talk about it. I tell them what my point of view is and they agree or disagree, whatever. Um, but like the thing I really liked is what I posted is like, I like a tight sleeve cause I think it makes your wrist look sexy, sexy, right? That's a sexy so wrist. then you've got, thank you. Well, it's partly sleeve. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's what's fooling you. It looks so skinny because yeah. of the sleeve. Um, but I like that I can fit that watch under there, yeah. you know? And also I don't like the guys that go around with the big, oh, look at my, I like being able to like pull it back and kind of see it. It's not so mm-hmm. in your face. Yeah. So what would be a leather strap version of something like that? Sure. So you could put a leather strap on one of those Octo Finissimos, but it, it's a larger diameter. It's a, it's, it's a little bit wider. Yeah. Uh, those watches really are wonderful. I mean, those were some of the hits of the show for us, for sure. Um, you know, the, the, the kings of ultra thin is Piaget. Obviously okay. a great jewelry maker, but they're mm-hmm. really well known for the the ultra slim dress watches. Patek Philippe, Vacheron Constantin, Langa. Uh, I mean, I, for for you, you know, a man of extraordinary taste, I think vintage Patek Philippe uh, sounds really nice. Mm-hmm. You know, nineteen fifties, nineteen sixties, mid century, maybe in mm-hmm. white gold or steel. You know, so so non colored gold um, would Are be those wonderful. rectangular. They they can be. Um, I like I, I like the idea of a rectangular. I don't yeah. have anything rectangular. Yeah, I mean they're they're, they're and what's funny <laughs> is the, the the shaped watch is something that's mm-hmm. not round uh, are actually f- considerably less expensive than round watches mm-hmm. because everybody wants round. It's it's easy. It's obvious, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, but yeah, a nice square rectangular like Patek Philippe in platinum or steel or something could be could be really nice. We, is we there talk. A, is there a thing in the watch community about like because like when you buy glasses they mm-hmm. say oh you know you got to look at the shape of your face and yeah. this kind of thing blah blah blah. blah. Um, which I am disputing in my book. I'll give you a little preview. People always talk about the glasses shape with your face, hmm. what they totally forget. And I shot something with uh, for two years with um, with uh, who owns Ray Ban? Oh, Luxottica. Uh, yeah. I shot something with Luxottica for two years, optical glasses. And the hmm. thing that I realized is hair. This, 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 what kind of hair you wear? totally changes the shape of your face. So mm. if you've got long hair and it's hanging down here, but you have a round face, you don't have a round face anymore. You've got a skinny face because your hair is all down in your face. So what does that kind of hair do to him? It's a lot of hair. Yeah. But I mean, it doesn't change. It's not like so down in his face, like women have their hair down or they have it really back or whatever. Just the issue, like hair kind of changes some of your concepts. Sure. Is there a thing in like wrist shape and like the arm shape and for that, that people say, well, you know, you have really thick forearms. So like you want this kind of watch <laughs> or your hands are meaty. So you want like a meatier kind of watch. Is there a thing like that? I, I mean, so the, 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 there isn't, there's no rule I would say, but I, I will say so a pet peeve I have is people that wear their watches too tight too mm-hmm. tight and then it becomes like you get this kind of like sausagey kind of effect yeah. you know where really like the, the skin is kind of bulging uh, you know on, on either side but there's, there's no hard and fast rule about, about what a man or a woman should wear mm-hmm. I mean watches are as we've said a few times now like these are completely frivolous like if, whatever you like go for it 
You know, and I, I think that that's what's so kind of silly about our comment section is people are saying, you know, acting as if things are objectively bad, yeah. which they're just, not, they're just not like it tells you the time and that's about it, you know? Uh, but yeah, there's really no hard and fast rule on, on something like that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I could see you in a mid-century Patek Philippe or Vacheron, something interesting. Yeah. I think that'd be real. I just shot some of Piaget for their catalog. Did you? Recently. That might be kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'll look into it. Maybe send me some, uh. Yeah, I mean, I not that you're that. not a busy guy. No, no, no. I, got I hear all the stuff you do. So maybe one of your minions could send me a, a recommendation. <laughs> I got or a something. minion right to my left. Okay, here. great, great. Um, Any other do? questions? Okay, Hodinkee questionnaire. Scott Schumann, the sartorialist. Question number one: What is a watch that has caught your eye recently? Well, you know, I'm glad you asked that. I just found <laughs> myself at Basel World, and uh, with all in all seriousness, I really did like that Bulgari um, Octo Finissimo because it fits, I think it would fit under the sleeve of my, it does fit under the sleeve of my shirt. Um, and they have so many styles, you know, we were kind of in and out of there quickly. I would like to go in and look more quickly at all the variations. So they gave me one, um, for the shirt, which I like, but I think I want, I want to go back and see all the different other variations and make a more, uh, informed decision. And was that a sponsored response or is that the... Uh, no, no, really, <laughs> really. Because like, I mean, don't they have like a... I remember going into the room where they they gave me one yeah. um, to have and I liked that one, but mm-hmm. they kind of picked it out for me. Sure. But they don't know my wardrobe and how crazy I am and all that. So, know, yeah. And we didn't have time because we were only there for one day. Yeah. And I was like, oh, wow, there's a lot of these, like sure. the whole thing. So I would like to go back in and really look at them and decide, okay... That's the one I think because they can't possibly know my wardrobe, but I know like mm, maybe that one would be yeah. the best with all the different things that I have. Yeah. Oh, I just remembered another question that is not part of the Hodinkee questionnaire. So you're obviously a well-known person and people know who you are. Uh, what is the craziest thing somebody has done to convince you to photograph them on the street or elsewhere? I don't think anybody really does it for two reasons. One, I wear glasses, but I don't always wear them all of the time, especially when I'm shooting and if I'm feeling self-conscious, which means um, that my sight's a little blurry. And so I'm very good at just not noticing people. I can feel <laughs> that they're around doing stuff, yeah. but I just... Posing and trying to look awesome. Yeah, or, you know, kind of sitting kind of funny in a particular <laughs> way or something. Like, uh, So I'm very good at just acting like I don't notice it. And, you know, I don't feel that bad uh, about doing that. And if anything, some every once in a while somebody does it I think, oh, I would shoot them, but they're going at it so crazy. They're being so over the top. I'm going to feel dumb going over them now going like, hey, can I shoot you? It would feel make me feel too self-conscious. Hmm. The other part of that, um, I guess because I'm a grown man <laughs> uh, and, and I don't always wear my glasses or when I am wearing my glasses, I'm kind of squinting. I don't think people look, think I look very approachable. Interesting. Now, when I go to approach them, I'm very nice and I've got a smile on this. But like a lot of times when I'm walking around, I am working and I'm looking and I'm, I'm making decisions. And, you know, if I'm walking, even if it looks like I'm doing nothing, I'm probably scanning and deciding, oh, that person looks interesting. Okay, I'm going to follow them. Where would I stop them? That's constantly going on all day. I'm trying to think about where my camera's setting. So if I do, I can quickly. So I've got to be overexposed. I'm just blah, blah, blah. So usually I'm walking around like this most of the time. And I think it makes me look not very um, approachable. Hmm. Do you okay, shoot on full good. manual all the time? No, I shoot on aperture, aperture. priority, mm-hmm. um, and then I just take it from there. I don't like manual very much because it slows the process, mm-hmm. um, and I don't usually shoot things moving too fast. Right. So if I, again, it's one of those where you kind of 
see what you think you're going to shoot, or I think I've, been, I've gotten very good at seeing a, a, something start to develop. Sure. And then I can make um, decisions like, ooh, i got to switch to that really quick or whatever. Um, but for the most part, it's aperture because I like that really shallow depth of field because yeah. um, I think it helps pull out the element I want to be most obvious in the photograph, whatever that is, the shoes or like if it's shoes, I think are really important. I try and get the person to sit down so there's less, the space people are looking at is smaller, hmm. you know, and there's more focus on the shoes or whatever. What is the coolest place that you've traveled in the past year? Well, it would have to be India just because we went to so many, I went to so many different places, um, you know, from Mumbai and Delhi and Rajasthan to, you know, Orissa or Odisha, um, Chennai, a lot of secondary cities and very small villages. We'd use those cities as the base and then we'd spend a day or two just in the car going out and staying in a, overnight in a hotel close to a small village or whatever. And um, so it'd have to be India just because I was working on that book so much and it was just such you know, uh, an incredible variety of things. You know, f for example, I, I stopped a guy in a, in a um, flower market way on the, on the outer edge of Kolkata, which Kolkata is kind of like their Detroit or Naples, sure. you know, a, a once opulent city that is in, you know, really hit hard times. Um, they don't have much of a youth culture, you know, they don't have much, they have a lot of culture, but not much youth culture. So there is no place where you go see the young kids hanging out or whatever. Um, and so we're out in this, uh, flower market and I stop this kid and I take a picture of him. And when he turns to walk away, I realize he's got sparkles all over his face, but I didn't get it in the shot cause I didn't, we were in shadow. It didn't really pop out. I shot him kind of quickly. So then I'm looking, I'm like, Oh shit, I got to find that kid again. So I, and it's a big market, you know? And so I looked all around. Finally, I find him, I turn him around, we shoot it again. So you can really get the sparkles. And so I'm thinking it's some kind of religious thing or something. And I say, and he doesn't speak much English. I'm like, what's this? And I'm pointing to my face and he goes, rave. <laughs> he had been at a rave all night the night before. And I'm looking around going, where the hell is he finding a rave in Kolkata? <laughs> yeah. um, especially out here, like he must live somewhere close. And it's just those kind of totally unexpected things. You know, we, we were up very early one morning at like five o'clock in the morning driving somewhere. We stopped at a roadside place and I wanted an espresso. They wanted some tea. So I finally get a little espresso. It took them forever to make it because they don't really make, they had to boil this coffee thing. I set it down on the desk. I go to check something. I come back and a humongous cow, which is, you know, sacred there. Nobody saw, comes over and basically just chomps my whole paper tea cup, my whole paper coffee cup yeah. and just boom. They're okay. Well, now my coffee's gone <laughs> with this amazing. cow. And I, I, I saw it coming. So I was able to get the phone out and film it. And it was just so fun. Like, you just never know what you're going to see, you know, the next step, you know, and, and I love that surprise. That's amazing. Uh, and you have, in fact, previously answered question number three, which is what is the best advice you've ever uh, ever received? Yes. Number four is, sir, do you have any guilty pleasures? I feel like you do. Guilty pleasures. Shoes? Make it, um, yeah, I mean, you know, I like shopping. Yeah. <laughs> I find that fun, which I don't know how I did it, but somehow it, um, my kids hate shopping. I've got two two teenage daughters. Yeah. So I don't know how I did it, but somehow they don't love shopping as much as I do. Hmm. I think it's out of guilt when I would come home from a big trip when they were younger. I'd be like, come on, let's go shopping. Let me buy you things. And uh, so they don't bother me for a whole lot of things considering hmm. they're teenage girls. Um, but I think my 
guilty pleasure is um, Jenny loves reality TV, mm. loves The Bachelor and Real Housewives. So to be with her and to share her life and for us, I have to sit there with her and watch some of those shows. Yeah. I don't enjoy it, <laughs> but as a, as a fiance and as someone that wants to be in her life and a husband, yeah. I feel that I have to do that. And um, every once in a while, I enjoy a couple of the episodes. So I guess that would maybe be one of my guilty pleasures. Okay. And finally, do you have a cultural recommendation? A cultural recommendation? Um, well, can I say something like, you know, really delving into the documentaries on like iTunes and of course, yeah. Netflix? I just find that because um, that's what I do a lot of times to like scope out if I want to go to a place. And, you know, I really love these sub subcultures I find fascinating. That's maybe one of the reasons I moved to New York. Um, so like I had mentioned before, we watched uh, Paris is Burning. Mm. You know, I mean, I really wish I would have had a chance to shoot that at that time. Um, not only, you know, photographically would it be great, but just, I just always think it's so touching to see people who are into a particular culture, not because they think it's going to make them a lot of money or become famous, but because these are people who are coming together out of a common love for something and they really create a culture. And so you see that in that, or, um, uh, I just love these documentaries. There's a great documentary on iTunes called on the Bowery. Mm-hmm. And so this uh, person shot this documentary just over here, like in the 30s and 40s. And you still recognize a lot of those buildings, but it was really the Bowery at that time. And there's two people that are kind of acting. So this story is kind of around them. But everybody else is quite obviously not actors because nobody can act that drunk that well. (laughs) Um, So my cultural thing would be there's a whole culture on your TV of documentaries and things like that that you can watch and... um, and really explore the world from ever having to leave your couch, and which I think motivates you to then go out and f- learn about those things and find out about the world. Hmm. What about yours? Oh, Tell me man. about yours. I, I never think of these ahead of time, and I, I always should because I forget that we do this every episode. Um, I guess there, there's two. Uh, the first of which is, uh, I'm sure you guys all heard about the, this college admissions scandal, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, which is just fascinating, you know, by itself, but. I'll give a recommendation of check out New York Magazine's coverage of it. I would say that nobody covers privilege and news better than New York Magazine, and mm-hmm. they did it. They just fucking nailed it. I mean, again, there's nobody that can do that type of, of like really kind of like salty, funny, but like really insightful and really like strong journalism, like like New York, like New York Magazine. Mm-hmm. So I would check that out. They've they've done you know they have a story a day at least about it. Uh, and then the second one is kind of a humble brag, but also a recommendation, and that is Rayo's. The restaurant on the Upper East Side, the old Italian restaurant. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Have, you, have you been? No, I thought it was downtown, Rayo's. So, so I mean, I've heard of it, but there, I thought There's it was... Raul's over here. But okay. The, so Rayo's is, uh, it's a 10-table it's a Italian restaurant on 100, East 114th Street. Okay. It is, so they claim, the most difficult reservation to get in the United States. And okay. a, a friend of mine said, hey, you know, I've got this table at Rayo's. Do you want to you come? And so, of course... It is amazing. It is really, I mean, it is something out of a movie. Um, you know, it, it's, there's 10 tables. They do one seating per night every night. The tables are owned. So this gentleman who has a table that I'm friends with, his family has had this table since 1975. Every Monday. 
and you have to go. And if you don't go, then the table will be passed along to somebody else. And so they can pass it off to friends, et cetera. But basically, it's, it's impo- you can't buy your way in. You know, it's not something that, that money will afford you. Uh, it is just this wonderful experience of just red sauce Italian, just old school lasagna, meatballs, fried chicken even. Uh, it is an amazing place that, that I cannot recommend enough. It, I mean, it was one of those like pure, pure magical New York uh, experiences. Ten tables uh, and one seating per night. So I said, hey. What time should you know? What time's the reservation? He goes, oh, we have it all night. You can show up at five o'clock. You can show up at eleven o'clock. The table is yours, which is just a wild, wild thing. So if you have the opportunity, I, w- I would really pursue. So you buy it's almost like buying a parking space, or basically, something, right? Yeah, like basically, but it's only one night a week or whatever. Like he can buy yeah. however many nights a week. So he can so figure the, out my, how to my get. friend Scott has um, has a <laughs> Monday night, and every Monday night he has a table, and 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 if he doesn't use it, he gives it to a friend or family, etc. But his his parents had this table from the seventies. Uh, and you know they, they all know each other, and it really is the, this amazing thing. And so now it, it you know they, they do Rayo's pasta sauce, which you can buy in Whole Foods yeah. or whatever. And there is a Rayo's, I think, in Las Vegas. You know, more kind of commercial Disney-like version of it. But the original, as I said, ten tables. But is there anything in your life that you would want to commit to from 1975 to <laughs> now? <laughs> That's a really good question. I mean, I think like you, if you could if you could commit to something today, yeah, that would be great, and everyone would be jealous. Yeah, like I can't hardly think of anything that I would want. 30 years from now that I, cause after a while I'd be like, Oh God, I got that table. I yeah. gotta give some, I'm not doing carbs anymore. What was I thinking? <laughs> I mean, I guess you could just stop going. Right. So, I mean, it's not like you have to, you don't have to pay anything to keep the table. But you said it, but if you don't go, somebody else gets the table, right? E- eventually. Yeah. Eventually. Like if you stop coming for, for a period of time, they'll be like, Hey dude, where are you? You know, let's, let's pass the table on to, to somebody else. Uh, it just feels like one of those places that can only exist in New York and, and it only does. Uh, and also like even in, in New York of today, like this would, like quickly get co-opted by hedge funders and, and whatever. Yeah. And the people that, that have these tables are not, I mean, Bloomberg has a table, but like beyond that, it's not a hedge fundy crowd. It's not a finance crowd. Yeah. It's like interesting people. And like the, 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 the friend who, who has a table, his mother was a florist on the Upper East Side. And like a, a well-to-do florist, but like she was a florist. And like she was just part of this community. And somehow they said, hey, do you want a table sometime? And, and that's how it happened. How is this not a Seinfeld episode? <laughs> I mean, it's, dying to be a Larry David or like a Seinfeld. Absolutely. I mean, it really, you, you should Google it. I mean, like Vanity Fair has written about it, et cetera. It is really just a wild, wild place. And the fact that like, you don't really realize how small 10 tables is. Like 10 tables oh, is nothing. I, it's, you know, you're talking like 30 yeah. people in there, you know, it's, it's really well, per night. Um, and you know, it's all cash. Uh, it is just a, a really neat experience. So highly recommend it if, if, if you can, if you can make it happen. Greg, can you make that happen? Okay. So I formally apologize to you for making this one run so long, but no, no, maybe you can wonderful. get another, um, uh, you know, a part one advertiser and a part two advertiser. <laughs> right. Maybe Bul- I just made you money. Yeah, Bulgari for number two. Yeah, <laughs> Bulgari, not, not. Yeah. Then Rayos. Exactly. Then Rayos, yeah, because I'm dying hungry now after listening <laughs> to that. Uh, Scott Schumann, living legend, truly a, a true honor to have you here on Houdinki Radio. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for, very much for having me. It's been quite a, a fun afternoon to come in and do this. And I just want to give you a little warning. As you know, I live right across the street. <laughs> so whatever that party is every night that your cleaning lady is doing here and these people she's inviting when you guys are gone, <laughs> You should try and get invited to that. I heard it's one of the toughest things to get a... It's uh, tougher than Rayo's. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's <laughs> toughest to get into yeah. the party that she has here every night when you guys are gone. But I watch <laughs> it from my window. I'm like, wow, if they only knew. <laughs> now you know. Now we know. Now you know. This week's episode was recorded at Hodinki HQ in New York City and was produced and edited by Grayson Corhonan. 
Please remember to subscribe and rate the show. It really does make a difference. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week.